Good morning, Mr. Santos, when you're ready. May it please the court, uh, Joshua Santos on behalf of the United States. Defendants in false claims act cases involving federal programs very frequently. Can you talk a little louder? Uh, or put the microphone on louder. Put the microphone on the sway low. That's it. Thank you. Sure. Uh, the fundamental, uh, let me start over. Uh, defendants in false claims act cases, Your Honors, involving federal programs very frequently say that the relevant rule was ambiguous. Uh, and, and the fundamental point in this case is that a defendant that actually intended to defraud the government all along or a defendant who, who ignored deliberately uh, serious warnings should not be able to avoid all liability under the False Claims Act by having an attorney after the fact uh, say that there was an objective ambiguity and then say that the agency hadn't specifically addressed it. Now I want to start first with knowledge. I know there, there's both falsity and knowledge issues in this case. Could I ask but, you just a threshold question that doesn't go to the False Claims Act specifically? So assume that a court concludes that a defendant violated the Medicaid drug rebate statute but didn't have the scienter required under the False Claims Act. Is there any other way for the government to recover in that situation? Is in they violated the statute but without scienter, is the government just out of luck or is there some other mechanism for the government to get its money back? Uh, Your Honor, I, I believe there, there uh, are provisions in, in the Medicaid rebate statute, but my understanding – and I, I'm sorry, I don't have that fresh off the top of my head. My understanding is it does require some kind of uh, scienter. Typically, when an audit happens, uh, CMS will request that, that uh, the person pay the, you know, whatever was, was missing. But in terms of uh, kind of an enforcement action, that, that's my understanding. But uh, with respect to the, the False Claims Act knowledge standard, which is a really far-reaching issue because uh, it, it goes to – the government's able, ability to police fraud in federal programs. Well, the agency, would, the agency would have to be able to recover. I mean, in another context, it doesn't matter to the IRS whether you had scanner, bad faith, or good faith. If you didn't follow the tax law, then you're going to lose. Uh, Your Honor, I, I do believe that – I'm sorry, I don't have off the top of my head any, any provisions that I can tell you. I, I, that, that sounds – correct to me right now, uh, but, but let me just get to the False Claims Act, just because it is really far-reaching. It, it applies it in is, many but cases. Before you get to it, I'm, I'm here. Yes. Uh, before you get to that, there's a foundational question that uh, I uh, would like to uh, ask. Yes. Um, if a company reads the statute differently than uh, uh, the government reads the statute, and it always is going to be deliberately violating it because it has read the statute and it believes the statute means A, whereas the government mean, uh, says it means B. Uh, it's basically not an uh, – uh, what is the nature of that scienter if the company deliberately follows its own reading of the statute, which it believes, reasonably believes, uh, is uh, contrary to what the government says? Sure, Your Honor. I, I think your question is getting at the, at the fact that there are many possible factual scenarios. In that particular factual scenario, if there's a regulation and you disagree with it, you should challenge that regulation in court. You shouldn't I'm not just saying what you should do. I'm saying what, what is the center when they don't challenge it. They just read it. They, have, they decide that this is what it means. It's a reasonable position. It may not be the correct position, but it's a reasonable position. They deliberately follow their own interpretation of the statute. 
what is that scienter? I mean, they, I use the word deliberately because obviously they've thought about it, they've looked at it, and they're deliberately following their own interpretation and disregarding the government's uh, interpretation of a statute which could be read in a couple of ways. And so my question is, what is that scienter? Uh, on, on the facts that is you that are, willful? On the facts that you're providing, that would be deliberate ignorance, right? And, and, it, and it deliberate depend- ignorance. Deliberately ignoring. They didn't. They didn't deliberately ignore it. They faced it. They even got attorneys in their own place. Well, these are different at facts here. Let, let, let me just try to clarify the spectrum that, that we're talking about. I, I, I know you can go that in one second, but I think it goes to the heart of what's in this case, and it, it seems to me there is uh, an error about how to read the statute as opposed to a factual error, like saying I reported a hundred dollars when I made a hundred and fifty. Let, uh, let me put it this way. If you know that the government is interpreting something a certain way, and then you submit reports to the government, uh, and you know that the government's going to read those reports to mean something that is not true, that is misleading under the common law of fraudulent misrepresentation. That is a misleading statement. Uh, now, l- let, me, let me emphasize that the facts can vary. A defendant can uh, put forward evidence saying, look, we asked CMS, we disagreed with them, we told them we disagreed with them, we asked attorneys, well, uh, we I, asked I experts, sure and we, it's... We stay on point here. I think you're right. There are many factual scenarios. The threshold question here is in reading the text of this statute. And what Judge Niemeyer proffers, as you indicated, is the second prong of the, the, the Congress, when they enacted this thing, set forth three different way, may, means by which you can determine knowledge. Sienta. Uh, and the question here is are there three different means, or is there simply just one collapsed in which we don't read this text and make up something differently? I think that's where it's going in terms of how we interpret this statute. Are we going to interpret it from the plain meaning of the text, or is there something else we're going to use to now import a different meaning than what Congress has said? I mean, there there are all kinds of cases. There's a case now before the that potentially go to the Supreme Court out of the Seventh Circuit, which the amicus brief from, uh, among, among all people, Senator Grassley is in there, and who, who, who denotes there are three different requirements here. Uh, so this, this is a keen issue, but that's, that's a threshold point to get to a factual question of, well, what if they knew this or knew that, is to determine which one of these three does it fit on, because you can, I think, do you not agree you can do it on either one of those uh, three determinations of what constitutes knowledge? Yes, that's right, Your Honor, and, and it is, I, I completely agree, it, it, it'll depend on, on the facts and they can vary. So, for example, consider we the situation. We don't know any facts here, but we don't have discovery yet, do we? I, exactly, Your Honor. We're only at the complaint stage. we're up here on 12B6. Exactly, Your Honor. Uh, so so it, it'll we, depend on whether the. If we were to reverse this, it would go back, they'd it, have to have discovery. That's like right. Like have in a normal case. And if it's a factual question as to what they knew and what they intended, and they got, probably had lawyers giving them all kinds of advice. You're right. There are going to be issues about uh, whether that's discoverable and all those kinds of things. But we're we're here on Rule 12b-6 dismissal. That's right. There, the plaintiff is entitled to have the complaint read favorably. That's correct, Your Honor. And and consider... The government bailed out of this thing, didn't didn't even get in it. But now you're down here arguing on appeal. (laughs) Right? I'm sorry, what was that? Your government didn't get in it. You all didn't intervene, did you? We did not intervene, Your Honor. Right. The, the, it's a, the Keaton plaintiff brought the suit, mm-hmm. and you all didn't get in it, and now you got an adverse decision 
and and you're the lead lawyer at the at the Court of Appeals. Well, Your, Your Honor, uh, we did participate at the panel stage, and, and we came up here on a. It's like a mess. That's what I saw looking at it. There's never been any discovery. We don't know what the facts are. Yes, Your Honor, we don't. And and I to get to the the core issue um, regarding Safeco and the three separate False Claims Act provisions, I, I want to emphasize, consider the following uh, hypotheticals under which, if the defendant's rule were adopted, there would be no, no knowledge under the False Claims Act. Even if the defendant, uh, similar to the facts in HALO, just said, I don't care about the rules, I'm not going to look up the rules at all. Uh, I, I just, I'm going to try to make as much money as I can off of Medicaid, and that's it. Similar to HALO, where the, the company in HALO, the, the evidence there was that the company was like, my strategy is uh, just to steal technology, and I will make as much money as I can and worry about the legal consequences later. Under those facts, that is deliberate ignorance under the False Claims Act, and it can't be that after the fact an attorney can say, actually there was an objective ambiguity, as the, the attorneys did in HALO, and that and the agency hadn't specifically talked about it. And therefore, you, you would say that that defendant did not act with a culpable state of mind under the False Claims Act's clear deliberate ignorance provision. Or, for example, say that the well, defendant... if the agency acted on it, how would the um, entity there know that their actions were, were wrong? So the... Black's Law Dictionary definition of knowledge, and as the Supreme Court has said in cases like Unicolors and Halo, knowledge is about the state of mind of the defendant at the time of the relevant conduct. So Black's Law, for example, says it's, it's the firm belief of a defendant, a state of mind where the defendant considered that he knew something. Under the False Claims Act, if you believe that you were defrauding the government, that's your intent all along. And, and then later well, on, if, you if, did. You didn't. If you have an agency that that hasn't spoken on the subject, and you have basically a blank slate, how does how does a party know that what it's doing is is violates the law in that circumstance? How so, can it know when there's no definitive statement as to what the law is? So uh, under the False Claims Act. What you need to have is actual knowledge or deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard. And this, l let me point you to HALO, which I think will be helpful in your question. In HALO, the particular company, after having dis disregarded patent law entirely, then said, actually, it was unclear whether, how the patent law applied. In this case, we have reasonable arguments that, in fact, the patents were invalid. Um, and then the Supreme Court said specifically, intentional or knowing wrongdoing can exist regardless of whether there's objective recklessness. And it said uh, very clearly, it can't be that a defendant can avoid all consequences based but on the attorney's ingenuity that, after uh, the fact. To specifically to pre-existing patent law that, were, that, that, that said you could have this liability for bad faith? Uh, it, it's analogous here. It, it's in, every question, in every case, it's how does the regulation apply to these facts? Right? How does the patent law apply to these facts? How does the regulation apply to these facts? Right? And even if there's an objective ambiguity, a defendant can have acted with a culpable state of mind. Remember, we're not, we're not talking about, in the knowledge problem, we're not talking about whether they, re they violated the regulation. If they didn't violate the regulation, then there's no falsity. But so would that also apply if, if they got it wrong? So, so in other words, if they thought we're going we're gonna to defraud the government, um, and it turns out that their interpretation is not just objectively reasonable, but is correct. 
in your view of the world, that would mean that they've still committed a False Claims Act violation. No, not at all, Your Honor. If, if, and let me put it two ways. First, let me just give you the top-line answer, which is if they didn't violate anything, there's no falsity. Right, so there's no liability. But they could have still been, been acting with a culpable state of mind. And for example, let me give you a, a factual example. Uh, say that a defendant had sold the government bulletproof vests or law enforcement gear. And there was evidence at the time that suggested that, in fact, under certain circumstances, that gear can uh, start breaking down. It can be defective. And the defendant just ignores that. Now, it could be that actually the gear was fine. And then the defendant wouldn't be liable. But if, in fact, that gear was defective and the defendant acted with deliberate ignorance, that would be a culpable state of mind, there would be falsity, and it would be material, and therefore there would be liability that, under the false it, claims. The, the, counsel, is that, that seems like that's more of a factual thing. I, I mean, certainly in terms of actual knowledge, if there's facts – you know, a company sells this business and, 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 and you, know, you know you've lost half your sales and you don't disclose it. Those are facts that you know. Here we're talking about legal issues that the answer is either A or B. And you, it seems to me you could have a strong belief. You can investigate it. You can try to figure it out. And you can say, hey, I, if I had to make a call, it's one way or the other. But that seems, at least on the actual knowledge thing, prong to be less than actual knowledge. So uh, let me make clear, Your Honor, that I, it is not the case that a good faith effort to understand the law and a good faith conclusion that the law is one thing would result in liability. Absolutely not uh, what, what we are saying. But, but if, for example, let me give you some concrete cases. This court's case is in Drakeford and Mallory, right? In those cases, there were complex re legal regimes, and then the defendants asked attorney after attorney, and they got answers they didn't want to hear. The attorneys kept saying, this is probably illegal, you shouldn't be doing this, and they ignored it. And this court held in both of those cases, if you just turn a blind eye to red flags of that kind, and you don't care, you are acting with deliberate ignorance. That is sufficiently culpable state of mind under the False Claims Act. And if you did that, and it was a violation, and the government, and it was material to the government's payment of money, you have caused the government to lose money uh, based on a fraud. That is, and, and let me emphasize too that that is. Does it matter if you have that state of mind uh, in a circumstance where their your position has an objective reasonableness about it? I'm, I'm sort of alluding to their position in this case. Uh, where they believe it meant something different from what the government meant, the best reading. And uh, 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 they deliberately followed that, despite the fact the government says that's not the correct reading. Uh, uh, can you have – does that support uh, the mens rea that you say uh, is required? So I, I, I think that on the complaint here is actually alleging that the company believed that the rule was otherwise after the 2007 rule and took actions upon that understanding. Those are, those are the allegations here, and we're only at the motion to dismiss stage. And we so, don't know that they believed what Judge Niemeyer proffers. That's right. We we're only no, at the complaint stage. There's no evidence, there's nothing in this record to show what they, their position is. That's right. The, uh, Except the, in the complaint, as stated by the plaintiff. Well, then you get to Judge Richardson's question. So You've got to have discovery. You've got to find out what they really believe. That's is, right. If, Maybe they are innocent. But, to, but they, we don't know what they believe. And the big question here we really need to ask is when do they know it? 
there seems to be in Judge Richardson question the, the question of they knew it at the time. But here there's a clear implication that even if they do a post hoc determination of it, after it's over, years after, come up with something that a court would say is objectively reasonable, even though they didn't even have that in their mind at the time because a lawyer came up with it, is that sufficient? That's that's really where we're going with. I mean, to, to say it, the analysis of this doesn't follow any different than any other knowledge-type requirement, whether we're dealing with drugs and criminal action, we're dealing with all, because Congress has plainly set forth with us in the text of this statute the three different means of determining knowledge, the definition of, of, not, of, of no and not unknowingly. And we are bound to follow the text of it, but if we choose outside, which appears to be the, the effort is to go outside and now bring in something different than the plain language in this text. Is there any dispute that this language is plain in terms of what the, the text under the, Fair, the False Claims Act states is knowledge? So I, I see that my time has expired. I didn't notice before because the, the clock was gone. It has, Mr. Santos, and, yeah. but uh, I apologize to you because you had some downstage distractions was not your fault. So you can proceed uh, with answering uh, uh, Judge Wynn's question. And if there's uh, we have some, we lost some connectivity, if my good colleague and friend Judge Wilkinson has questions, he certainly should. Uh, but apologize for that distraction. Go ahead. Uh, so I, I completely agree, Your Honor, that it, the text of the False Claims Act is plain, that Congress set out three specific standards and under longstanding principles, uh, actual knowledge would be would apply if you actually believed you were defrauding the government. Congress clearly intended to reach that kind of person uh, in terms of the culpability of state of mind. Deliberate ignorance, as circuits uniformly have recognized, is about ostrich-like conduct. If you hide your conduct to avoid learning more, or if you just don't take any reasonable inquiries, you don't ask anybody, you don't ask a consultant, you don't ask attorneys, and yet you realize the risk, those are all culpable states of mind under the plain uh, principles of the False Claims Act. Uh, if there Can I no just ask a legal question, D. Uh, what is the government's position on whether uh, the SAFECO standard applies to this statute? So uh, consistent with what I've been saying about the, the, the um, expressed terms of the False Claims Act, SAFECO does not map on, and, and let me just um, briefly explain what SAFECO said. SAFECO was about the, uh, the term willfully in the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and specifically that concerned when, um, to put it simply, when a defendant needs to send a letter to someone saying, we ran your credit and we took an adverse action. And the Supreme Court said, willfully, it's, it's, it's unclear what it means. We have to look at the context. What did Congress mean in this particular statute? And it said, well, in this one, because of the structure of the statute, it seems like willful includes both knowing and reckless. But there were only allegations of recklessness in that case. And it, and it went through the facts and said, there is no recklessness here. And then at the very end, there was a footnote where the Supreme Court said expressly, for purposes of this provision, those words are in the footnote. Um, and then it says uh, a, rec a person who, subjective, excuse me, subjective bad faith is irrelevant if a person uh, was relying on a reasonable, an objectively reasonable interpretation. And it said uh, you can't treat them either as knowing or reckless. Um, in, the, in the False Claims Act, however, the, the background of it is where defendants are profiting from the government. It's a, diff it's a different context. 
very often they have to certify so their. So the courts that have, uh, uh, you disagree with the courts, the courts of appeals that have uh, applied uh, Safeco to uh, the False Claims Act. So uh, we, we do disagree with SuperValue, which is the only one that applied the defendant's rule here. I think the other courts of appeals are much more ambiguous. For example, uh, the, the strike case that's unpublished that defendants rely on, I, I believe that one had a footnote that said there's no evidence of deliberate ignorance. The McGrath case that's unpublished in the Ninth Circuit just had a C-site to Safeco. It, it, wasn't that, it, it wasn't laying out the rigid test that's at issue here. Um, the Purcell case was before HALO and even suggested that it seemed to assume that the defendant was actually relying at the time, whereas the defendant's rule here says it doesn't even matter if the defendant had even realized this ambiguity or realized this argument. It's totally relevant because if, it, if an attorney can come up with it after the fact, then it doesn't matter. Um, uh, the FALP decision in the 11th Circuit squarely said, said that the district court in that case erred in applying a, a similar rigid test for Sienter and then expressly said it can't be that a post hoc argument about ambiguity would determine Sienter regardless of what um, was in the defendant's state of mind at the time. Uh, and and th that court had received briefing on Safeco. Defendants say, well, that, that court didn't even cite Safeco, but I, I think its reasoning is, is clear. Uh, the Dunnigan case, uh, I'm sorry, I'm running through so many of them, but there, you know, there are various things. Uh, in that one... Well, there seemed to be quite a few cases. It seemed to be the suggestion is, uh, what you're saying, I'm uh, sure is, uh, is an accurate characterization and to some extent, but it uh, also seems that uh, that seems to be the judicial drift of the courts of appeals across the country. And uh, I, uh, 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 you may be right that there hasn't been a uh, uh, learned focus on, on uh, the, the distinction between the context in Safeco and the False Claims Act, but... Uh, I think that Nigeria. that no one has, no one has, uh, no one except the Seventh Circuit, over a very forceful dissent, has adopted the kind of rigid rule that is proposed by defendants here, and uh, and said and analyzed Halo at the same time, and and so I I I would urge this court to read through Halo to see that the Supreme Court said intentional uh, or knowing conduct can exist regardless of objective recklessness, and then the Supreme Court said uh, it declined to apply Safeco there because it didn't fit the context. Because in that context, as in the fraud context, the subjective state of mind has always been critical. In fraud cases, that's always critical. Um, so unless there are further questions. Thank you, Mr. Santos. Thank you very much. Mr. Callum. Your Honors, may it please the Court, my name is Joe Callow. I'm one of the attorneys representing the relator in this case. And the questions that you're asking are exactly the proper questions about what a lawyer thought or what a lawyer advised or what the company believed. And that's the fundamental problem with the district court's decision in this case. We don't know. Because at the motion to dismiss stage, this court didn't apply proper statutory analysis and determine what the statute said. This court ignored all of the allegations of subjective intent that we have in our complaint. And of all the cases that we're talking about here today and all the cases that are in the briefs, this is the only one decided at a motion to dismiss stage. Safeco, which we talk about, was summary judgment. HALO, which we talk about, was a trial. Shuti and Proctor from the Seventh Circuit were summary judgment cases. 
And this court's jurisprudence on the issue, whether it's Mallory, whether it's Drakeford, whether it's Guggenheim that was decided several months ago, all of those cases were at the summary judgment stage. Those cases directly addressed what did the company think? What did the lawyers advise? Was their lawyer shopping? What did the company reasonably believe? Did the company actually have a reasonable belief? We didn't get to any of those questions in this case. And we have allegations in this complaint specific to those items. We have lawyer advice on what the statute means by an actual letter to CMS written by Forrest's lawyers saying, we think this means stacking. And what did the company do afterwards? Ignore it? Interpret it differently? They chose not to stack. They went better. They hired a third-party consultant to specifically tell them how not to stack in this context. They hired a consultant to intentionally void their obligations under the statute, as alleged in our case. And that's never been denied. When you, when you talk about stacking, can you explain a little bit more exactly what that is? Yes, sir. So in the context of giving rebates to different parties or entities, the focus under the rebate statute is the unit price and what discounts are given with respect to that unit, that pill. And we have a chart on our complaint that follows a GAO 2005 report talking about that. So in a nursing home or a skilled nursing home facility, there may be a pharmacy that is giving out prescriptions that doctors prescribe for patients at that skilled nursing facility. Forrest wants to make sure that its pills are the ones that are there, not others. So Forrest wants to give discounts to that pharmacy to make sure its pills are in stock and then encourage doctors to prescribe its pills over others. So it gives a discount to that pharmacy. For every pill they prescribe, we're going to give you a rebate. Forrest also wants to ensure that insurers provide their pills, so they give a discount to the insurer. So if you're a Humana insurance patient and you're at a Pharmerica skilled nursing home and you're getting a prescription for a Forrest product. The insurer isn't providing the pill, though. The insurer would just, that would be just a question of coverage. Yes, sir. So you're getting a discount to Humana to get you that pill as part of the process. You're giving a discount to that pharmacy at the GPO to make sure that they're on the formulary. Both those discounts are given for the same pill. Do you agree that, sorry, I'm over here. I know it's really hard. Sorry. Um, do, do you, I sort of alluded to this with your colleague. Do you agree that if the statute is properly read to refer to the discount to a single entity, and I understand you dispute that, but if that's true, there's no falsity and all of this center stuff is irrelevant. If the statute is unambiguous and a court determined that the statute is unambiguous and doesn't require stacking, I agree we would lose, Your Honor. I agree with that. Why do you but, but we lose it? But, but we but, lose it falsity without doing the center piece. Well, I lose because if the court unambiguously interprets the statute, I have to accept that. But everyone has said this statute is ambiguous. No one has said it's unambiguous. And with all due respect to the district court, I sit here as an appellant in an en banc proceeding, and not a single judge has actually said we're wrong. No judge has actually interpreted this statute. I think at least two said it was the best reading. 
Well, what judge, the district court said is that our reading was plausible. The district court said our reading was plausible and we could be read to interpret it. I conclude that the rebate statute may be susceptible to multiple interpretations, including relator's construction. It was on page 35 of the opinion. Relator's interpretation, along with some of the relevant guidance and commentary, indicates that there's some ambiguity in the best price provision of the rebate statute. However, relator's interpretation of the rebate statute is not the only plausible reading. So the district court didn't say we're wrong. It said it's ambiguous. Yeah, but once the it's DOJ ambiguous, says that we're right, and Judge Wynn said that we're right, but I'm no one said we're wrong. Question but once we're ambiguous, then how do you get? And some uh, the forest takes the position uh, different from yours on an ambiguous statute. Yes. Uh, how does that relate to Sienter? It would go to a fact issue of what they believed or didn't believe. Well, they believed the that they believed in their interpretation, and, and you just read where the district court said that was yours was a plausible interpretation. But I thought the district court said the best reading was contrary to yours that it wasn't an anti-stacking, but dealt with a single entity on a single transaction. No, no Your Honor, the position is not what Forrest believed at the time. We have a lawyer post hoc in litigation coming up with an objectively argument, like a law school hypothetical. But there's nothing in the record that says what Forrest actually believed at the time. That's a key distinction in this case, too. But, but beyond that is to keep in mind this statute has three different definitions right. of knowing. And what you posit, one of the interesting facts here is that the, you know, the, the, the other side actually went to the agency type and asked them to take this out because they thought that it did just this. They would they, they would deny it, and they did it anyway. Correct. <laughs> that, that this this is a stronger case than the case that the Supreme Court is considering cert for in terms of the Seventh Circuit. They did it anyway. There's evidence right here. You cannot stick your head in the sand under the False Claims Act and then come out later on with an objective, reasonable excuse that some lawyer picks up years later and say, "Well, it was objectively reasonable for them to think that." That's not the False Claims Act. Senator Grassley, when he, when he worked to get this done, makes it clear that was never the intent of Congress, and the intent of Congress was to reach these kinds of difficult cases. Otherwise, how do you prove them? You lose millions and millions of dollars to individuals who fit with one of these categories. All we need to do is read the plain text of the statute. We don't need to create a different type of standard for Sianta Congress told us what it is. I'm happy to discuss Safeco, Safeco and Halo and reckless disregard, but this case is about actual knowledge and deliberate ignorance. And we have it in spades in the allegations that we have in our complaint that have been ignored by the district court. Counselor, and that's what this case is about. May I ask you a question about reckless disregard? And this, I think, goes back maybe to Judge Niemeyer's question to your colleague. So is your position that we should not apply Safeco to define reckless disregard under the FCA? Or is your position that however we define reckless disregard, we ought not take footnote 20 of Safeco and say that that is a threshold requirement, and if you can't show that, you can't show any form of scienter? Your Honor, I don't believe that footnote 20 of Safeco is the definition of reckless disregard under the False Claim Act statute. I, I think that it can be defined under common law and defined differently. But I don't need to address that issue because there are three different standards 
and Safego and Halo only talk about one. And actual knowledge and deliberate ignorance are the key issues that we have before so the, the so court the here today. So the crux of your argument is we ought not read Safego to mean that if you can't show reckless disregard under the FCA, that means you're out and it doesn't matter if you can show actual knowledge or deliberate ignorance. Absolutely, Your okay, Honor. thank the you. Two other points and problems with Safego are first, applying Safego avoids any interpretation or analysis of subjective intent. Because once you go down the any objective standard argument, you no longer do an analysis of the actual intent of the parties to answer the questions that are being asked here today, which is the fundamental problem in a fraud statute, as my co-counsel noted. We never get to the question of what the, co the company actually believed or what advice they got or what the board of directors decided to do. The second problem with the safe co-analysis I want to make sure is this warned away analysis that comes up in Schutte and Proctor, which I think is inappropriate. When we talked about warned away as only circuit court precedent or warned away as only specific guidance, this case we have rulemaking. This case we have a rebate agreement that has the force of law. This case we have a 2016 rulemaking that is clear as can be as talking about stacking if it wasn't clear in 04 and 07. And most importantly, this circuit has warned away jurisprudence that would be washed away if this court adopted the Proctor Safeway analysis. This court's decision in Drakeford is probably the best case and example of the problems associated with the Safeco analysis. Because in Drakeford, it wasn't a motion to dismiss, it was two trials. First trial, the defendant won. The second trial, the defendant lost. And why? Because of evidence of subjective intent of Sienter given by attorneys that changed the landscape of the case. In Mallory, the issue before the trial was whether or not there was evidence of judge, of lawyer of advice, so to speak. In Guggenheim, just decided several months ago where the defendant won on summary judgment. The analysis was, what did the company know? And in Guggenheim, the company went out and talked to other people. In Guggenheim, the company went out and talked to officials. All three of those decisions talked about warned away. They talk about authoritative guidance. And no other circuit has that law, noting the spectrum associated with warned away. The Seventh Circuit's analysis of Safeco in, in its Schutte and Proctor is ultra narrow. And if the only guidance that's allowed under that analysis is circuit court authority and specific guidance from the, from the agency, you're never going to reach those standards. Mr. Callow, uh, would you follow up with Judge Agee's good question about what stacking is? You, you explained the stacking of the discounts, but would you explain how stacking frustrates the objectives to make sure that the government, the taxpayers, don't pay more than the best price? Absolutely. So in the example that I was giving where that Humana patient is at the skilled nursing facility and Forrest gives a discount of, let's say, 20% off that pill to get Humana to make it on its formulary and prescribe. Put in the cost for the pill of a dollar as you do an example so you can illustrate how that happens. So let, let's say the pill's a dollar. That's the easiest analysis as of that. So the pill's a dollar. And Forrest says, I'm going to give a 20-cent discount 
to Humana because I want Humana to put my product on its formulary. I want the doctors who associate with Humana to use our drug over others. So I give a discount to make sure it's covered. But I also want that skilled nursing facility, that Pharmerica pharmacy, to use my drug as well. So I'm going to give them a 10-cent discount. Well, now the patient who's a Humana-insured, who's at the Pharmerica skilled nursing facility who got their drug from that pharmacy, there's a 10-cent discount and a 20-percent discount. There's now a 30-cent discount on that unit, that drug. And the government says, well, I want the best price you get for that drug. That's the whole purpose of the healthcare system, is for the government to get the best deal. For that drug, it's 70 cents, because there's a 10 cent rebate to Humana and a 20 cent rebate, 10 cent to the Pharmerica and 20 cent to Humana. It's a 30 cent. Forrest only did one. They only did 20 cents. And so the best price analysis was that the government gets 23.1% off or the best price. Mr. Callow, isn't the problem in that that example is that the statute rather conspicuously does not include the word patient? Like the list of the best price to the X, the Y, and the Z, none of the X, Y, and Z in the statute says the best price a patient pays. No, it says from the manufacturer, and it says actual price realized. And in 2016, it I'm sorry, it does not says, say actual price realized. The, statute, the rebate, gre- the the rebate statu- agreement does. The statute, does, he's asked you about the statute. The statute does not say the best price realized. That's the rub with it, right? Good. We're looking at the statute first and foremost. And it says the price available from the, manufa- available from the manufacturer to, and it lists out wholesaler, retailer, but not patient. The statute says exactly that, Your Honor. The rebate agreement, which has the force of statute under the Supreme Court's decision in Astra, specifically has actual price realized and specifically talks about unit. And there have been three different rulemaking procedures in place where CMS has given guidance to interpret that in 04, 07, and in 2016. All right, but as I understand what you're saying, you agree the statute doesn't say it, but you think we should read the, the regulations – to, to rewrite the statute to apply to the pay, to read the word patient in. That's the rub I'm having with the statute. I'm not sure those regulations actually say what you're suggesting, but whatever they say, it's still inconsistent with the statute, right? I mean, right. we go back to the fundamental idea that it doesn't include patient. It's referring to the price available to a single entity. Your Honor, I, I think the statute is clear. And the statutory scheme is clear. I think it's clear, too. The problem is we think it's clear the opposite way. I, I understand. So <laughs> that, that's certainly possible, and I agree that we may have a difference of opinion. At best, then, Your Honor, it's ambiguous. And if it's ambiguous, you need to apply statutory rules of construction to give at least some deference to CMS. And at some point, even if we have a disagreement, as we sit here today, the fundamental question in the False Claims Act statute is what did the company believe at the time that they were making the claim? And if the company comes in and says, I agree with you, I had no intent, I didn't know anything, I got five sets of lawyers and they all told me that that was the way to go, I'm innocent, I'm sorry I didn't do anything wrong, let's decide that at summary judgment and trial. And then we go but, further, but we go further because even if we accept all that's said, one of the fundamental uh, principles that perhaps we're debating around the country in the courts now is, you know, what, are, what is the value of agency regulations? 
And I think the proposition has always been Congress cannot render every possible interpretation of the laws. So you got to have some level of interpretation. CMS does that. They did some level of interpretation. It's there. They say it. But what really shows it is the defendant in this case came back and said they want to do exactly what they were doing here. And CMS said no. Right. And the question then is, do we just say, well, you don't have to pay attention to those regulations, even though you, you know it's there. And even though Congress has said deliberate ignorance is one of the standards here for showing knowledge, that you can just thumb your nose at it and says, well, that's your interpretation. I don't have to follow it, and that's the end of it, uh, even though I asked to do the other side of it. That even at best, even if there is ambiguity, there's an issue of fact in this case. Exactly. I mean, it's not something we ought to be determining that's there. These are facts we are trying to play out as an appellate court here. We're not equipped to do that. We, we, we don't even know these facts. We're making up hypotheticals all over the place in an effort to bail out a company that built the government out of a $600 million, and there's got to be something wrong in that when the Congress has plainly indicated its statement in the plain text of the False Claims Act. Which is why when Shuti and Proctor say any objective post hoc rationalization works and we will not examine subjective intent, it's fundamentally wrong. It has to be fundamentally wrong in the False Claims Act statute. And Your Honor, if the company comes in and agrees with you and puts forth all this evidence and has these no, emails, the, the so be it. This. I, th I think the government agreed with this before, which is why I asked it the question earlier, is that even if the, the company was like terribly wrong and confused, if the unambiguous statute only applies to the rebate from the manufacturer to a single entity, their intent does not matter because there is no falsity. I understand you disagree with that interpretation, but I think you agree that if there's no falsity, the center doesn't matter. Your Honor, it's not that I disagree. It's that the allegations in the complaint. But your allegations don't get to interpret the statute, right? So the one thing the court is able to do, might not be able to find facts very well, but we are able to interpret statutes, right? And the statute is from a manufacturer to any single entity, well, right? And I understand you disagree, but if that's the right interpretation, there's no falsity, and so their center simply doesn't matter. I mean, I accept the hypothetical, right? The hypothetical is if I read the statute that way unambiguously, then there's no falsity and center goes away. Right. I find it hard-pressed to say that this statute is unambiguous, Your Honor given all no, of the complexity that. and all of the issues that. that we have here. So I, at a minimum, Your Honor, I, if, I, I concede if a court says a statute is unambiguous and it says something different, I, I have to concede that point. But this statute is not unambiguous to that degree. It's ambiguous. And the evidence of what the company... the ambiguity uh, to the statute? Uh, Judge Richardson quoted the statute. I thought... Uh, the words were pretty clear, a sale from a manufacturer to a wholesale distributor or distributor. Well, uh, what, what, where's the ambiguity in that? I, I don't believe there's any ambiguity it requires to stack no, because no, it's I'm, all I'm based on unit price, Your Honor. In the statute, uh, where's the ambiguity that allows for any uh, other transaction to be considered? I, I don't believe any is ambiguous in this context, and any means all, based on 
Webster's Dictionary and plain statutory interpretation. But then, 101 the, then, the, of what the, rules then are. the nouns that followed would have to be, if it means all, it, they would have to be plural, right? So if you wanted to change any to all, which, you know, fine, maybe call your congressman to do that, but <laughs> otherwise you also have to say to all wholesalers, retailers, providers, right? Each word that follows would then have to be plural, not singular. I totally to agree, Your Honor. Conjunctive. It, it's in the disjunctive, right? Yes, Your Honor, but that's the intent of the statute. No one disputes that all of these statutes are designed to give the government the best deal. That, that's the whole purpose well, it clearly, of, of, of AMP, the best of WAP, deal. of all of these. But you have to identify the deal, and the statute seems to say the sale from a manufacturer to enti, any entity. Uh, it uses it in the singular, any wholesaler, retailer, provider, uh, and you can pick any one of those transactions and take the lowest price, and that's the best price. I don't know if the statute is ambiguous in, in the argument you say, because grammatically you just don't get there by making any be all and make the entities be plural. Then, Your Honor, just to be clear, that interpretation ignores the rebate agreement. It ignores three different notice and comment periods associated with the statute. It ignores 20 years of CMS program guidance that has been issued from 91, 94 to present talking about a different analysis. So it ignores argument, the lawyer's letters. Excuse me, counsel. Is your argument that you can create ambiguity by any of those things? No, Your can Honor. Can any of those my, things create ambiguity? No, my, my argument, Your Honor, is that I don't believe the statute can be read unambiguously to ignore those things in an ambiguous statute has to take into account and give some deference to those readings. And to ignore all of the CMS guidance and all of the rulemaking and all of the rebate and the 2016 rulemaking that I don't know anyone has said that 2016 guidance is ambiguous in any way, shape, or form, where it talks about different, different entities. So I, I respectfully don't believe this is an unambiguous statute that can be interpreted to say stacking isn't required. And to do that ignores 20 years of rulemaking, guidance, everything else in the record that we have, including the subjective intent of the defendant. Of course, we are, the Supreme Court has recently spoken on this subject in Kaiser. And uh, uh, I, I think the clear message from the court is all of that can't overrule the statute, which is the intent of Congress. And if the statute is clear and unambiguous on its face, uh, I think that ends the matter. We, you can't have the government, the agency, taking a contrary position over years and saying, therefore, uh, it overrules. Uh, I'm aware of Kaiser, and I understand the implications. In this context, though, CMS was given the authority to rule in this area. It was told to issue its guidances, and it did so multiple times in 01, 04, 07, and 2016. Basically, when we're doing what the defendant's doing, post coming up with any kind of reason we can to now say this is a plain reading when the use of the word entity is there. You have average manufacturing prices of multiple entities there. There is some measure of ambiguity there, but the, the, the import of it is this doesn't start with just this case. It's been going on for a long time. And, 
and 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 part of this statute it has it it doesn't include just actual knowledge or recklessness there's deliberate ignorance i keep going back to how is it that you have an agency that gives you interpretation you come back and say i want to do this and he said no and you do it anyway and at least from a factual perspective something is there whether we want to go back and re-examine a statute and pick it apart and says it only means this when nobody else has said that, the district court didn't say it. I don't know where it came from. All of a sudden, we go and read line by line and try to pull out some means to support a rationale that just doesn't exist in the text of this statute. Well, it and, turns and ultimately, it's a post hoc rationalization that fits in the same means of what the defendants are doing in this case. Come up with some reason after you built the government out of millions and millions of dollars, and we're going to say it's subjectively reasonable because we can go back now and re-examine this statute after 20-some-odd years that nobody else has done and give it a meaning that, that's not there. Kaiser or no Kaiser, the standard that's been adopted by the Seventh Circuit in Safeco is any objective interpretation, not the interpretation, not the actual interpretation, not the interpretation at the time of the fraud, any objective interpretation, post hoc or not. And when Drakeford talks about concerns about lawyer shopping, and Drakeford talks about the concerns of legal advice, the Safeco analysis throws that out. When Mallory and Guggenheim talk about what actually the government thought, the Safeco analysis throws all that out. It's a perverse result to say that a False Claim Act statute based on fraud, we're not going to analyze the subjective intent of the person at issue. Thank you, Mr. Cowell. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Elwood. May it please the court, John Elwood for Appellee Allergan Sales. To prevail in this case, Relator is going to have to win on both of the issues we addressed, both the falsity element and the scienter element, and they prevail on neither. I would like to begin with the falsity element, the way you read the statute, because um, the Medicaid rebate statute and the regulation, which just restates the definition we've been talking about today, and the rebate agreement cannot be read to require aggregating discounts to every payer along the drug distribution sale. That is not a price available to any purchaser from the manufacturer. That is a net revenue figure that is available to no purchaser. No purchaser can come in and say, give me your net re- this drug for your net revenue. Nobody can ask for that. And that is all that Congress wanted to do when they enacted the statute. It was actually originally entitled the Medicare Anti-Discrimination Act. They just wanted people to get the same deal that, um, uh, that the best private purchasers were getting. The House report said they should have the benefit of the same discounts that other large public and private consumers enjoy. That's question? what they're getting under our definition. Sorry, I just, um, I understand your argument on falsity. It just seems, uh, maybe you can explain to me, this has been through two court here, you know, two court levels now, and nobody has decided this case on that ground yet. The district court didn't say, didn't decide it on falsity. The original panel didn't decide it on falsity. If it's so obviously not false, why has this not occurred to anyone yet? I would like to read to you, it's because the government, because the relator's position below was the position we're taking now. They said, and this is reading from their brief, the FCA does not reach claims based on reasonable but erroneous interpretations of a defendant's legal obligations, unquote. So the district court wasn't under any 
they weren't they didn't tell them you have to come up with the best interpretation they just said it's if it's objectively reasonable it's not fraudulent and so the judge showed her hand she said this is the plain and natural reading of the statute she also said it was ambiguous well when she said i mean it, basically she decided the case that the relator posed below she it was enough once it's ambiguous it comes out and if they told her best reading um you know we we could lose on that ground too she would have had an incentive to address that. As it is, she said, it was a plain and natural understanding. So it's just that it wasn't argued this way until now. The relator didn't argue it this way. We argued both points below. And, um, and this court, because it is a purely legal question, and we do think that this is by far the better interpretation, when it says, again, it says a price, and a price under Black's Law Dictionary is the, uh, the, the consideration in exchange uh, for something, and it says it doubles down on that interpretation. It says it includes language that's very unusual to make clear that it's a bilateral transaction they're talking about. Price from the manufacturer to any wholesaler or retailer or provider or HMO or uh, nonprofit or uh, governmental entity. I mean, when you look at that, I don't know how you're supposed to come away from that and say, oh, you can take a little bit here and a little bit there. We cited a case, Gibbons versus Malone, in our brief that says that you can't take a little bit here and a little bit there when it says any purchase and sale or a sale and purchase of any, any equity security. And the Second Circuit there, an opinion by Judge Cabrana, said you can't pick and choose and say, you know, a, a purchase of this security and a sale of that security. You're talking about one. And that's, I think, a very clear indication that what the, the statute means here. And furthermore, um, we told the government that there's been a lot of talk here about the post hoc inter interpretations. All the post hoc interpretation is on the other side of the V in this case. We said in our comment letter, which is incorporated by reference in the complaint, I want to read what it says. They say, um, we said, quote, the proposed rule, this is at page JA239, the proposed rule must be interpreted to mean the associated discounts and price concessions are provided to the same entity to whom the drug was sold. T page 239, if you look at two th uh, 305, Pharma, representing the whole drug industry, said the preamble language, because the complaint was, we said that the language in the preamble, not the regulation, which restates exactly the definition we've already been talking about, do, but sub-regulatory guidance in the preamble. Falsity comes down to whether the defendant actually abided by the law and not whether they can provide an objective, reasonable interpretation of it, either sometimes later on? I'm saying that, well, when we're talking about falsity as opposed to scienter. I understand what you're saying. I'm asking the question. Do you agree with that, that the, the, the falsity is determined by whether the defendant actually abided by the law not whether they come up with an objective, reasonable interpretation later on. Yes, falsity depends on whether it's a proper interpretation of the statute. Scienter is whether it was reasonable. But if I could read what Pharma said about even the sub-regulatory guidance, the preamble language must be read to mean the best price is the lowest price realized by the manufacturer, net of all price concessions, to the specific best price eligible customer. So we announced our position and under a regulatory regime where we are supposed to make, uh, in the absence of specific guidance, we are supposed to make reasonable assumptions. We announced to our regulator, we interpret this to mean uh, price is a price to a specific person along the chain, that you don't accumulate it. And, um, and they never told us that was wrong. I'm sorry to interrupt, but can I just ask, just a following up on Judge Wynn's question. 
because we're trying to review the district court decision, right? And the district court dismissed on both scienter and falsity grounds, but as to falsity, the district court held this is an objectively reasonable reading and that's enough to show that it's not false. But that was, I, I take it from your answer to Judge Wynn, that was wrong. The district oh, well, court got that wrong. You know, because we've been entirely talking about just, you know, falsity, not objective falsity, because it kind of dropped out after the panel briefing. I was answering as though he was just talking about, you know, plain old falsity, uh, you know, the way it, the panel decided it. Is the court's analysis of falsity correct in your view? The I think the district, district court's, court's analysis of falsity is also correct um, because so the panel didn't address. Correct, but, but the district court said that it's so long as the reading is objectively reasonable, there's no falsity. That's and correct. Like just told I, that's that is not that's correct because I, was, I was answering the on-bank. That was my on-bank answer, not my panel answer because. I'm, I'm not trying to. No, no, no. I'm just trying to figure out we're reviewing the district court's holding. And so you agree that that part of the district court's holding is incorrect. No, I would say that that is, I'm, I'm sorry, because that dropped out, because we were just talking about, like, we argued four grounds for affirmance. One of them was that falsity must mean objective falsity. And I was just distinguishing when I was talking to Judge Wynn, you know, that I, I, for purposes of this, is I, 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 because I'm so firmly believe that but, our but, position but, is correct, but, that I didn't get into the fact this, that it's objectively this, this false. This is really where we're going with it. What you just said is the district court is correct in saying you don't have to look at it if you can find an interpretation that's objectively reason. Post hoc comes up is can you as a counsel come up with that reason years later and it fits within that? Because that's exactly what he's saying. He said it doesn't matter in terms of the law on it if you can't, if you don't, if you can come up with an objectively reasonable interpretation, even though your client didn't have that interpretation at the time it was committing the act. That clearly fits within that, and is that your position that that is the way it should be? It's the position of the, of the courts that, that have gone a different direction on it. So I'm asking, do you, do you follow that too? In, in before, That's the post hoc question. Before the panel, we argued, and the brief is the same here, we argued both that our position is correct and that our position was not objectively false because it was objectively reasonable, and that we didn't have scienter because it was an objectively reasonable position. I think that all of those things are right. My, 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 when I answered you in our, our dialogue, I was answering that first question, falsity as opposed to objective falsity. I think they're both correct. I think we can resolve this case on just the, uh, the, the, uh, just the falsity ground, that our interpretation is, in fact, as the panel majority said, well, the best reading. that's the question reading. that was posed to you, and it seems to me yeah. that you haven't answered it directly. The district court said, using the tools of statutory construction, I conclude that the rebate statute may be susceptible to multiple interpretations, including relators' construction. But defendant also alleges a plausible and objectively reasonable interpretation. Accordingly, the relator failed adequately to plead that Forrest has made claims that can be deemed false within the meaning of the False Claims Act. Now, that's what the district court held. And that's been asked to you, was that a correct conclusion about a falsity? I think and, it was. Uh, and uh, you haven't defended that, but it seems pretty obvious to me that if... Uh, a statute clearly is susceptible to two reasonable interpretations, and somebody takes an interpretation on one side, it can't be called false. It's closer to an opinion. That is correct. 
I, you know, I was answering what I think was a harder question. Is that in the text of the definition of false, falsehood? It is in the common law understanding of what the word falsity means. Does the statute word define it in that manner? That is, I, I think I, we cited cases uh, w w which well, talked about the district court. We're, you're, we're reviewing the district court opinion, and that was the conclusion. Was the district court in error? I believe that that was correct. I think the case can be even defended if you put aside objective falsity and we're just talking about whether this is, as a matter of law, false. We think this is the better reading of the statute. The was in error. I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to understand your response to Judge Niemeyer. You said, I think that is correct. He said, no, was I that in error? You said, I think that is correct. Well, I think, th I think that the district court opinion is correct. That's what I meant to say. But I think we can also defend it on the harder ground, not whether it's objectively false, but whether it is just false. We, this is, I think, the best reading of the, of the statute and the regulations. Because, again, the regulations restate exactly the same formulation from to each of those buyers. Now, uh, um, opposing counsel has talked about all of the positions that the, um, the CMS's 20 years of regula regulatory positions. But I would like to read to you what the district court said about that. Quote, Relator has not pointed to a single example of where CMS explicitly states that manufacturers must aggregate discounts to different customers along the supply chain in a given sale. If you look at the actual regulations, um, you know, there's, there's general stuff saying about how you have to collect together all of the, uh, all of the discounts. Um, but when you're talking about a definition of what a price is, you have to read it in light of that, of that, light of that definition of price. When somebody talks about a price, uh, the price is what you paid for that after all the discounts, after this coupon and that coupon. When, you know, there's another discount down the chain, you wouldn't say that that affects your price. Um, and again, nothing CMS said uh, is any different. The only time that we have acknowledged that, that uh, a discount to another person can affect the price is when it's designed to affect the price to another party. So, for example, for a chargeback, if a wholesaler... Um, uh, is allowed to sell to CVS for the price of 90 when otherwise it could only get a price for, for you know, 98. Uh, clearly, it's trying to adjust the price to CVS by allowing them to sell for 90 to CVS and making them whole so that they can afford to do that. Uh, we would say that even though that goes to the, um, the wholesaler, that you can put those things together for when you're tr turning, figuring out what CVS pays. And we have said that, and on page 13 of our motion to dismiss, we said, you know, look, this is consistent with our interpretation. We don't understand you to be saying that we failed to report those kind of chargebacks where it, where it adjusts the price to another party. And, and, you know, if you look at pages 19 to 21 of their response, they don't say that, or they don't contest that. They just say, you know, it doesn't have to be just these price-adjusting discounts. You're supposed to put together every single discount. And that is just, you know, when they were, when they were talking to opposing counsel, Mr. K Mr. Calo, about where you find the ambiguity in the statute, which, again, is the same language as the regulation. It's just not there. There's no language in there that allows you to say, collect together discounts so that you accumulate a price. It's not even a price. It's a net revenue figure that is available to no purchaser. No purchaser in America can buy uh, drugs for the net revenue price that Relator and the government are arguing for here. What is the and input of the, of the 2007 comment letter then, comment letter to CMCS to, in which you recognize this language here indicates aggregate, and yet the CMS declined to remove that language and then 
then the client actually began to identify instances of these so-called double rebates on here, took a few of them out, but didn't take all of them out. And, and, and to the tune that, you know, for years it, it did receive this, quote, double rebate situation. How, how, do you, how does that letter fit in? And then keep in mind, if it means anything to anyone, is the purpose for what this statute is, is enacted for, and together with the agency interpretation of it that's here, together with years of, of, of matter in which it's, it's done, and your client's own stated letter that in 2007, it understands this, but nonetheless it does it anyway. How does that fit into to, to this? Judge Wynn, we didn't say that in the letter. In the letter we said that sub, the preamble, sub-regulatory guidance, not the regulation itself, but the preamble suggests you might want to stack. But we said, as I read to you already, the, the regulation itself says what we are saying, that you don't, you don't aggregate these things. And remember, the regulation is the thing that gets deference. But isn't it what you want to say in the letter? You wanted CMS to then include a provision to indicate you didn't have to do it in that manner. But we also said the regulation doesn't... That's what you also said, but that's what you said, and that was declined by CMCS. They didn't... You they then undertook actions to corrective actions to, to get rid of some some of them, but you didn't do the rest. Again... So how, how does that fit in? May I answer? I, I, but, but I do want you to answer, but I want to make sure you're answering my question. <laughs> uh, how does that fit in the whole determination that, well, the statute's clear and we didn't have to do it, and we didn't know anything about it, and doesn't fit under deliberate ignorance or anything about it? I don't think that when you say that a preamble, sub-regulatory guidance is ambiguous and might suggest something, when we then say, but the regulation only requires us to report discounts to particular buyers, uh, and then when we act consistent with that, and again, Pharma said that the, the, the preamble language uh, should be interpreted to mean the way we want, that you, again, only look at discounts to individual buyers. And when, I mean, the, basically the entire industry said, we interpret it this way, and again, under a regulatory mechanism that says, in the absence of specific guidance, and again, nobody can point to guidance that says you have to accumulate everything, uh, every discount. In the absence of specific guidance, we are to make reasonable assumptions. We told the, our regulator what our reasonable assumption was, uh, that you don't have to do that. So For 15 years, they haven't told us differently. Counsel, um, the, the, the discussion that's going on now seems to be whether the allegations about um, your client you know, satisfy actual knowledge or satisfy deliberate indifference. And I understand your position that they don't, and I may agree with you. But do you agree? What I'm trying to get at is a legal issue, which is if you assume the statute's ambiguous, just for this question, um, and um, does the fact that Safeco's definition of recklessness exist, or, or lack of re recklessness, does that automatically satisfy the actual knowledge or deliberate indifference issue? Seems to me your argument, I'm not deliberately indifferent because of all the things you said, but that's a different question about, I, I think it's a different question than you're automatically cannot be deliberate and different because it's ambiguous. Uh, uh, before I head on, uh, the last one thing I want to say about the first issue about falsity is that just as Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes, 
agencies don't. And you would think before the, they change a regulation that makes a $600 million difference to a small drug company and billions and billions of dollars to other companies that say so clearly haven't done so here. But to turn to this issue, I think Safeco said, and, and the, the footnote there, which was not dicta, it was very important for the, um, the, the outcome because once they got past recklessness, the, um, the plaintiffs in that case were trying to say, well, then it goes to knowledge. And Safeco uh, said, basically, if the, if the provision is ambiguous um, and you adopt, you act consistently with a reasonable interpretation, you cannot, it would, be, it would violate, you know, traditional understandings and, you know, and, the, and our current understanding to say that you could be a knowing or reckless violator. Counsel, I mean, talk about elephants in mouse holes. <laughs> For like generations of common law, right, the sort of the central inquiry in fraud cases is about subjective state of mind and actual knowledge. And you think the Supreme Court wiped that out for purposes of a fraud statute in footnote 20 of a Supreme Court case about an entirely unrelated statute? I, I wouldn't say it's an entirely unrelated statute, but I think that um, I think that the understanding is that it's kind of a factual thing, and it was explained by the Seventh Circuit in this case. And it wasn't just the Seventh Circuit that adopted this. If you look at Judge Rogers' uh, uh, argument, I'm sorry, her opinion, and Purcell, it also said it doesn't matter. There was some evidence there. They said that's consistent with the view that some of the employees didn't believe this position. Uh, they never said that subjective intent doesn't matter. And the reason is that, you know, if it really is, this is a legal thing. You know, two people can have completely different views. Do you say that that person really knows the position when a court ultimately determines it's a different position? You can subjectively know something. And law is different than factual things that you and I observe with our eyes. You know, I have been routinely surprised by the way the Supreme Court comes out because I know that the law is different. Uh, but that doesn't mean, and you know, if you guys decide one thing and the Supreme Court overrules you, that doesn't mean that it is, you know, you were false along the way. Um, uh, and I think that that is the difference. That you <coughs> cannot know. You may suspect the law is something. You may predict the law will come out a particular way, but you can't right know the law is different. Like, I don't care if this is right or wrong. This is just how I want to come out. Like, then wouldn't you say that I have the kind of the wrong state of mind, that I am being deliberately ignorant? Well, and that's the allegation here. For deliberate, I, I, deliberate ignorance is harder, although I don't think that they've really made a credible argument or credible allegations of deliberate ignorance because deliberate ignorance is two, statu two, two requirements, that you uh, were aware of a high probability that you're wrong and that you intentionally blinded yourself from information that would have confirmed that. And it's just like you can't know something is wrong when it's ambiguous and nobody said, you know, there, there hasn't been an authoritative interpretation. You can't be aware of a high probability that you're wrong. And furthermore, what would you blind yourself to? There's nothing here that warned us away uh, to the position that you have, that warned us away from our publicly announced position that you only look to discounts to individual buyers in the chain. And again, I don't know how you can be deliberately ignorant when there, there is no warning away. You brought up the Seventh Circuit case. I, I take it you've read that case in the briefs that are involved in it, particularly for the cert that's going before the Supreme Court. Have you? Yes. Uh, tell me why Senator Grassley is wrong in terms of how we ought to interpret the False Claims Act. I haven't read Senator Grassley's amicus brief, however. But I can I tell you why I think the position is correct. It's the, the reason why... 
Uh, the government filed the amicus brief in Safeco that persuaded this, the Supreme Court of the position that it took. And it said there are two things about recklessness that are essential aspects of common law recklessness. The first is that it's a very high standard of mens rea. It has to be uh, a gross deviation from ordinary standards of care so that it's obvious that you're doing something wrong. The second is that recklessness is an objective standard. This was adopted at common law because it alleviates the problems of proof for plaintiffs. So it's, a, it's supposed to be a plaintiff-friendly rule to adopt an objectively sta reasonable standard. And the government took the position there. It was argued uh, at argument. You can see uh, now Judge Millett argued it in front of the Supreme Court, and they addressed this fact that it's only relevant, subjective intent only matters once you're objectively reckless. It was presented squarely to the Supreme Court. Uh, knowledge was uh, a, a standard of liability that the uh, because they couldn't prove recklessness when it was a disputed issue. Um, the, uh, the plaintiffs in that case made the same argument that relators are here. Aha, they really knew this. And um, they said subjective knowledge only comes in if you can show that it was objectively reckless. That's the way it was at common law. And, of course, the Supreme Court said in Escobar that you go to, you define terms uh, by looking at the common law antecedents. Now, I think that the F uh, Fair, Cre Fair Credit Reporting Act is a very good analogy for the False Claims Act because it also has um, enhanced damages uh, as a way of encouraging regulated parties to follow the law. That's just what the False Claims Act does. It, uh, although it's, it, they both involve willfulness, which as a matter of common law in the Fair Credit Reporting Act has been interpreted to mean knowing and reckless, and knowing includes uh, deliberate ignorance. Uh, courts have construed it that way. That's kind of mens rea law. Do you know the answer to the question I asked government counsel? Say someone violates the Medicare rebate statute but does so without scienter necessary to support liability to the False Claims Act. Does the government have any other way that you're aware of of getting its money back? Yes, uh, I believe so. Uh, and it's, I, I don't have the, the provisions either, but I've read that what the government can do in that case, CMS in that case can, can, add, can direct you to restate or recalculate uh, the rebate. There's, I think there's probably, a, or, or the, the, the best price, I think there's probably a look back period um, where there might be, you know, 10 years ago you can't look back, but there is a mechanism that's restate or recalculate the best price provision. So again, ordinarily when you have this kind of, you know, the, the, the proper way to clear up the ambiguity here is not to, uh, not to enforce it through fraud because again, there's several ways that this is kind of an unfair way. The first is that uh, it's ambiguous and, uh, or it's at least ambiguous. I think it's the better reading is ours. Um, but the second is that we announced our position, and although the government now is making all these noises about post hoc, we said there to the regulator exactly what, our, we, what we interpret this to mean. The whole industry did, and no one ever said, no, that's wrong, you've got to do it this way. Now, um, when did you do that? That was our 2006 letter. So it's a 2007 comment letter. You say 2006. this is the position, six. This position, you didn't ask them to change the language? We said you should clarify it, but we said this is the way we interpret it. No, what did you do? No, they we didn't. Ignored it and continue. Is that correct? We said that the preamble, which again, preamble is not entitled. Matter. You just said you said it to them. You didn't say you said it by the preamble. You just said that's what we see this to mean. And then you sent a letter to them and you said, you know, this is the way we look at it. And you asked them to change it. And they said no. So at that point, what is the, what, what do you do if you got counsel? 
you know, there's a thing called declaratory judgments. There, there's ways in which you then settle the confusion. And, and if we get in a business where, where you're being in a situation as this, going back and forth, I mean, what, what's, what's an agency? If, you, if, if you're going to go and say, would you do this? And they say no, and you just do it anyway. What did you do? Did you do anything? They didn't say. Did you do anything to resolve the confusion? Well, we said you should clarify this, and then they didn't do that. Did you seek any type of legal way through the courts to get the confusion? No, but I mean, they, uh, uh, also to clarify. Why, why not? Well, because we told them. The big money you're dealing with here. You because. You have to know, am I to do this one way or the other? And there seems to be this back and forth, and we're having it with CMS. Why don't we go and do this rather than just do it our way for years and years? <laughs> because we told them. We interpret the regulation to mean this. Pharma said we interpret that preamble to mean this. The rest of the industry said we interpret the regulation to mean this. And when they didn't say no to that, you know, all we have they is ambiguous no sub-regulatory guidance. Is that we will change it. And you, because you asked them to change it. That's also not. consistent with them thinking they don't need to do that because they told us that they interpret the regulation this way. When they don't do anything, that's also consistent with them saying, don't worry about it. You know, you're interpreting the regulation the right way. Did they say that? They didn't say anything either way. No one said that. I don't know where that came from. That's another post hoc characterization coming up here. Well, no one said that, and you made no effort to clarify the confusion here. I think that when you say this is how we interpret the regulation and no one says you're wrong about that, that that's a reasonable way of interpreting the statute. That's the way business is normally done. You can't constantly hector the agency to clarify kind of non-existent, you know, uh, when you're saying the subregulatory guidance could be read that way, we interpret it to mean something else. You can't, you know, go into and say, you know, can you clarify what we, the way we interpret this? That is a normal way of doing business. When you say this is our position, no one says otherwise. You can just plow ahead with that. Counsel, let me, let me over here. Let me ask you: Is it your view under the False Claims Act that there would or would not be cases where a plaintiff? on a given set of facts could prove actual knowledge or deliberate indifference but would be unable to show recklessness? No, I think that the facts that would make it deliberately ignorant or, or knowing violation would, would by, you know, definition make it reckless. One other point I want to... Does that depend on, sorry, does that depend on it being a legal issue and not a factual issue? I mean, his, his question could have interpreted both legal and factual. I, I take your position to be... He's correct if it's legal, but maybe not if it's factual. Well, I, if I understand it correctly, um, I think it might work both ways. Like if you know something, if you know you did something wrong, that also means you're reckless to the risk that you did it wrong. Um, but I, I, might be, I might have misunderstood the question. The other point I wanted to make is that um, numerous courts have decided this very issue on a motion to dismiss. It's a purely legal question. We're deciding this entirely based on the allegations. This court did so in Compline. The Third Circuit did it in Allergan-Streck. The Eighth Circuit did it in the Hickson case. Again, these are just based purely on the allegations in the complaint. Even accepting it all as true, you can say, you know, that we adopted what is at least a reasonable position at the time this was going on. And that is, you know, if you, if, you take a, if you choose between potential alternatives in a way that is reasonably, objectively reasonable, you are not a knowing or reckless violator. Well, I think the district court, I think uh, uh, 
the district court spent some time to justify doing this on 12b-6 and focused just on the statute. And the district court concluded that both sides had a reasonable approach to the statute, and therefore the statute could not form a basis for falsity and also could not form a basis for scienter. And uh, uh, threw it out because that's a legal question. That's what I understand. And so we don't need the, the notions of post hoc and the subjectiveness and so forth. The idea is we're talking about a statute that appears on its face. The best reading, the panel and the district court uh, concluded the best reading was probably uh, that it deals with a transaction between a single entity. I, I believe that that's correct. I believe that's correct. Is that least if the reasonable that's so, and that's really reasonably debatable, then it, uh, a lawsuit that argues about fraud against the government doesn't make sense. Right. The idea that when we are told that we can make reasonable assumptions in the absence of specific guidance, we make an assumption that is at least reasonable and probably correct, it's, it, that does not make a really compelling case for fraud. The last thing I'd like to say as my time elapses is, you know, every case in which, you know, the, 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 uh, the agency has said, uh, or every, no, every one of the comments where the agency said, you know, no, we disagree with this, or it talks about sort of price stacking, every instance they give of that um, has involved uh, a, an application along the lines of what I've already discussed, where, an a, uh, where a discount to one entity is used to be passed along or to adjust the price to another entity. We agree with that. As I said, there's no allegation here that we failed to report um, discounts that were designed to adjust the price to another customer. And, uh, you know, uh, w if there are no further questions, we'll rely on our submission. I, I want to make some clarification. Judge Niemeyer asked a question in terms of what the district court did, particularly in terms of determining the, the use of falsity here and the objective reasonableness. Is it as he, Justice Niemeyer, uh, posed it, or is it as Judge Harris put it in terms of what the district court determined? It really did not get to the question of falsity, or did it? And it really looked to the question of whether there was an objective, reasonable interpretation. We keep throwing out post hoc, but the, that is squarely in this case because that interpretation is a post hoc interpretation. There's nothing to indicate that the client had this at the time, at the time they were doing these things. And, and so that's where the post hoc business come up. It's not just some something. If there's whole cloth being created, it is as, as Senator Grassley said. This is this is created. This test is created out of whole cloth, as he puts it. That it doesn't exist here in the statute. And, and and he even indicates that the disregarding these at least the three different categories of knowledge is something that, in his word, he characterizes as being judicial activism. And, and I, I cannot disagree with that because it just doesn't exist there. But when we look at the district court's opinion, much of what we were profiting here sounds good, but it's not in the district court's opinion. Don't you agree? There was an awful lot to that question, so I'm not sure I'm going to hit That's all of it. Part. A lot of what we're profiting is not in the district court opinion. That's all I need to ask. Well, I, I think that the district court wrote the opinion it could take to dispose of the case based on how the relator proffered the case to them. The relator below literally cited Purcell as establishing the proper standard. So she had no incentive to say what the, you know, the, the platonic ideal version of the statute would be. That is correct. 
But when we're talking about the three different Sienter standards, I think that uh, it's clear that the three different Sienter standards don't have to apply in every case, just like Judge Agee's uh, hypothetical. I, I believe it was him. So is it as you say that Russian Senator Grasser, bring it up because he's really compelling it. This case is on point here. He says that, that the majority in that case treated like it was a Russian dollar. And so, you know, you, and on top of it, would you say this is not like, your interpretation is not like a Russian doll? It is. Statutes that have, hypo, that have alternative ways of satisfying mens rea, there are always going to be factual scenarios where a couple of them drop out. They just aren't relevant there. And that's true when it's a factual thing. Like, if you can't establish a, a, a sufficient factual mens rea to address recklessness, the other ones just aren't going to be relevant. That's the way it is. And the same goes true, it's same is true when it's a legal question. If you can't satisfy uh, mens rea of recklessness because, you know, your position was reasonable, the same is true for knowing uh, and deliberate indifference. It doesn't make it mean that the statute is, uh, the language is superfluous. It just means that in that particular case on that application, it doesn't have, uh, it, it isn't relevant. You know, there could be other facts uh, around this case, <clears throat> other than the legal issue to which those mens reas would apply. It's just that the fact that the, the thing that really determines it here is a legal issue. And, you know, they just don't have application. All three don't have to have application in every case. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Elwood. Thank you. Mr. Santos. Uh, a few points, uh, Your Honors. Uh, let me just uh, do a, a brief word on knowledge and then falsity, the statute, if I can, and, and then the bottom line here. Uh, so on, on recklessness, I, I think that the defendant's position that even in, in all cases that recklessness is the be-all, end-all standard is irreconcilable with the text. There also is not a legal factual distinction there in, anywhere in the text. And like this cases, this court's cases, excuse me, in Drakeford and Mallory show, if you deliberately ignore red flags that what you're doing is very, very likely to be illegal and you just don't care, that is a culpable state of mind. On falsity, um, as this court said in Drakeford, a legal question is a yes or no answer. It is an objective question. And the, the uh, Congress in the False Claims Act separated out the elements of a claim. So there's falsity that's material to a payment of money and it has to be knowing. So in this context, that means it's a regulatory violation, false. It is material to the payment of money, and then it has to be knowing. If you ask uh, whether it was a deceit or if it was something no reasonable person would have thought, you are conflating those elements. You are conflating the falsity and knowledge elements, maybe even some of the materiality. But Congress separated them out. I, I would point this court as well to the Ninth Circuit's decisions in Berceau and other cases cited in our brief. Uh, the Tenth Circuit's Polikoff case, Care Alternatives in the Third Circuit, saying con Congress separated out the elements. Falsity is just whether or not there's a regulation. Ambiguity is one of the circumstances that you, will, that you consider in the knowledge inquiry about the culpability of the state of mind. Um, just a, a quick word on... You agree? I mean, the, I understand the argument, but when the district court's doing that, we, we have case law that suggests that the falsity has to be objectively false, right? I mean... So, so the case law you're referring to is Wilson, which Drakeford specifically addressed. So um, the Wilson case was a case where there was a contract that said uh, you need to provide adequate maintenance. And the court in Wilson, there was some broader language, but the holding was 
a, a contract provision for adequate maintenance where we have like no metric for assessing whether maintenance was efficient enough or adequate enough, that that is just not the kind of suit that comes within the FCA. It it, what the holding was that it's not objectively false, right? I mean, I understand you want to narrow the case, and we're on bonk, so it doesn't matter now. But my point is just that the district court is applying the law that we gave to it well, in, in saying that the standard is objectively false. That, that might not be the correct interpretation, but that was our law at the time the district court was applying it. I respectfully disagree, Your Honor, because in Drakeford, the but court— Drakeford can't overrule— um, the but, prior case, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the principle we've got. I understand you think Drakeford, like, overruled Wilson. Wilson, I think it is. It can't do that, though. Not that it overruled it, Your Honor. It said Wilson was about this contract provision, but a legal question, and there was the Stark Law. It, it, the question is, if you complied or you or you didn't, it's a yes or it's a no. So that's falsity, and then if it's it, if there are reasons to think it was unclear, then, then you consider that in the as one of the aspects of, of knowledge. I, I see that my, my time has expired. Thank you, Mr. Santo. Thank you. Mr. Carlo. Does he have time to? A few points very quickly. Uh, <clears throat> the district court got it wrong. The district court's decision needs to be reversed. The analysis is inaccurate from both a legal and factual perspective, and it defied Rule 12b-6 in not giving credence to any of our allegations in the complaint. It Can I inquire falsity? into that one statement you made? The district court concluded that uh, reading a st uh, applying a statute that has uh, two different reasonable interpretations uh, by the parties, that uh, a, one party who takes a position on what the statute means uh, is not that is not a falsity. Uh, the court said. To, to plead that faulty can uh, the courts denied that that can be a basis of falsity. This, um, this is on the uh, page 36, uh, 35, 36 of the court's opinion. And the question is, is that wrong? It is wrong because it ignores the allegations in the complaint. No, no, I'm asking the legal proposition. Forget the complaint right now. The legal proposition the court made is if the statute is susceptible to two respectable interpretations can it be uh, and the plaint uh, the defendant takes one position can uh, that be a false position my my argument your honor and what i believe is that is wrong is that a lawyer cannot show up and create an interpretation out of whole cloth not creating the court read it itself the, the court, court looked at the statute and said the position taken by forrest was a reasonable position, probably a better position. And, of course, uh, the panel in this court said it's the best position. But set that aside. We're just assuming an ambiguity. The question is, doesn't that preclude any notion of falsity? I do not believe so, Your Honor. I believe it needs to be a factual analysis in that respect. I do think that's important. There were lots of questions about what this letter said or didn't say during the 2007 time frame. The letter's in the record. And counsel keeps ignoring the language that Forrest used in the letter itself. Language in the preamble to the proposed rule suggests that CMS views best price as the net amount realized by the manufacturer on a sale rather than the lowest price to a particular customer. It is critical that the final rule clarify that only discounts and price concessions to the same entity to which a drug is sold should be included in the computation of best price to that entity. 
They asked for CMS to change then, its mind. The, the CMS other, didn't do but so. But the other comments <clears throat> then go on to say, separate from the preamble, the actual regulation comports with the statute itself, which is to a single entity. Manufacturers wanted CMS to say that. Manufacturers said that's what they believed. CMS didn't say that, Your Honor. And when CMS didn't say that, and they're talking about reasonable assumptions, that's the ostrich in the sand motif. They made interpretations when they and didn't they get the CMS answer they told CMS what their interpretations were, and then there's no response. And we're trying to imply from CMS's failure to respond right. some, some statement, but, I mean, maybe it's we agree with you. Maybe it's we, we're going to come after you later for, for treble damages. And that's the fundamental problem, Your Honor. Let's not imply... Let's figure out what actually happened. Why, why don't we go back to what the forest did and go back to what their council said? Council wrote this letter. CMS didn't respond. What did council do? Did council say, hey, it's okay, don't stack? Or did council say, you know what, they didn't respond, I think you need stack? And that goes to the fundamental issue that we need to address. Council? When they talk about Council over here, sorry. Can I just ask you a question just along the lines of exactly what you're talking about? Ultimately, I understand your position is we, there needs to be discovery. This is a motion to dismiss. Is this going to be a legal question, or will it be a question for a jury to decide what inferences can be drawn from the conduct here? Mixed question of law and fact, that just like Drakeford, just like Mallory, it's, it's a factual issue that either a judge will decide on summary judgment or a jury will decide. Drakeford was jury. Mallory was jury. Halo was jury. That's yellowish. May I make one last point, Your Honor, although my time is out? You may. One last. Judge Wynn is absolutely right that I have a copy of Senator Grassley's amicus brief because it's vitally important that the sponsor of the FCA, who took time to do an amicus brief to the Supreme Court, identify what the False Claim Act means and the three different standards. And if you just look at the headings of what Judge Grassley said, the supervalue majority distorted Congress's straightforward and comprehensive statutory text in favor of a narrow and implausible alternative. The majority created its scienter test from whole cloth. The majority improperly reasoned that Congress intended the separate categories of scienter as subsets of one another, and courts have a history of judicial activism that erected improper barriers. This is an important read because if we want to know what Congress intended, under the False Claim Act statute to have three different standards. Senator Grassley outlines it, and I hope everyone takes a second to look at it. Thank you for your indulgences here today. Thank you very much, Counsel. Um, thank you all. Uh, we cannot come down and greet you as we normally would in our tradition, but know very much that we appreciate your arguments, and uh, we wish you well and, and be safe. With that, I'll ask the clerk to adjourn the court for today. 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 The court for today.